This episode is brought to you in part by Thomas Nelson, publisher of I Want to Matter. Your life is too short and too precious to waste. Written and narrated by New York Times bestseller Kathy Lee Gifford. Available now everywhere you get audiobooks. You're listening to Seeing and Believing, a film and television podcast that searches for the sacred on screen. I'm Kevin McLenathan. And I'm Sarah Welch Larson, and I come from the land of the ice and snow. Are you ready to unsheath your runed blade and run a foe through in the heart of a volcano? Oh yeah, all about that. I've got my bear shirt on, I'm gonna go berserk. Uh, I'm, I'm ready to fight some Vikings. <laughs> that sounds good. We are going to be painting the town red, perhaps literally, with our review of Robert Eggers' new revenge epic, The Northmen. And then after that, we'll be looking at a different view of a different town from the vantage point of Jimmy Stewart's apartment. Listeners, we are going to be reviewing a Patreon pick, Alfred Hitchcock's Rear Window. Less bloody, marginally less savage, but other than that, you know, it's still got some murder, right? Yeah, there's there's some murders. People die. Like, somebody gets hacked apart with a knife. I, I feel like that counts. Yeah, yeah. Well, that's coming up on episode 330 of Seeing and Believing. As we go into our uh, musical break, Sarah, you want to treat us to a little bit of a Robert Plant impression? Ah. Okay, I'm cutting that off. <laughs> Listeners, don't go anywhere. We've got a great episode coming right up. Now. Behold. He's here. He's here. Mother! Father is here! The king, my lady. The king. Your fate is set and you cannot escape it. How oh, I've missed you, my son. One day this kingdom will be yours. Thank you, Father, my King. Yes, we're here on episode 330 of Seeing and Believing, and I'm a little bit heartbroken, Sarah. There is a part of me that wanted to just shell out the royalties to use Immigrant Song by Led Zeppelin <laughs> for this episode, but, you know... We don't have enough patrons yet, so sorry, we, we just can't do that. Yeah, me humming will have to do. <laughs> so maybe we can get more people to pay so that I don't, like, sing on air all that often anymore. I, patron offering, maybe? Oh, man. <laughs> I don't know if I want to consider that. Well, well, we'll take that under advisement, listeners. We are going to be talking about a very Viking tale here on the first half of the episode. We're going to be talking about Robert Eggers's The Northman. Uh, what the witch did for Puritan New England and the lighthouse did for 19th century lighthouse keepers, a.k.a. wikis, the Northman seeks to do for the medieval Scandinavian revenge tale that also helps inspire Shakespeare's Hamlet. Alexander Skarsgård stars as Amleth, the scion of a noble, warmongering family who, as a boy, witnesses his uncle Fjolnir murder his father carry off his mother, and usurp the royal throne. This leads Amleth to form a mantra that he carries into adulthood. I will avenge you, father. I will save you, mother. I will kill you, Fjolnir. Fast forward a few years, and Amleth has become a hulking brute of a man fully capable of the bloodshed and single-minded purpose needed to carry out 
his vengeance. Eggers depicts this story and its setting kind of with the meticulous, unflinching period detail that we, or at least I, have come to expect from him. Um, And that was a big reason why I personally counted The Northman as one of my most anticipated movies of 2022. I was just, I was all on board for it, 100% in the bag, but I'm curious to get your thoughts to kick us off, Sarah. Um, what are your feelings on Eggers's whole deal? <laughs> and uh, what, what do you make of this latest endeavor from him? Yeah, Eggers is, he's one of those directors that I think I admire more than I like. And I do admire him quite a lot, especially like that exacting like attention to detail. Um, as someone with a linguistics degree, I always appreciate someone who's very focused on like precision of language and on like faithfulness to the language that would have been spoken at that time. So the witch very much appeals to me, the lighthouse also. Um, and I was delighted to see that there were like consultants for this movie for old Ukrainian and old Norse. Like that just makes me really happy to see that, that level of attention and precision. But I don't know, like I keep, I kind of hold him a little bit at arm's length and I haven't quite put my finger on why. So maybe we'll be able to talk about that during our conversation. Um, His movies, I think, are also so exacting and so rigid that there's like a very strict worldview isn't the right word for it. But there's there is kind of a, a, a morality that's very rigid. And I'm not entirely sure how I feel about that. So I feel a little bit off put by it. Do you know what I mean? I it, it's interesting, because I, I was I was having a conversation with uh, uh, Melissa Taminga on Letterboxd about this. Mm-hmm. And uh, she did not care at all for the North, the Northmen. Mm-hmm. Um, I, I liked it. I don't think that I like it as much as his previous two films. And we'll probably also get into why a little bit later but during that conversation one of the things that um i found myself articulating about why i like eggers is is not so much like i don't know if it if i would define it as a rigid morality but it feels like the movies he makes are just so rooted and i feel like rooted is a very good word for them like they're just buried in the soil of a very particular milieu a very like a time place culture um that it, it it's everything is so saturated i guess mm-hmm. with the that sensibility that for me at least it, it comes across as really immersive i feel like mm-hmm. i have been immersed in a an old norse culture after watching the northmen um and the benefit of that for me is that it kind of shows how much of an alien place the past is about how we don't really if if we were to meet a person from this period they would be so strange to us and we would be so strange to them mm-hmm. and i really appreciate a movie that can really kind of situate me in in that way and make me feel not in a way that's like a fantasy movie where it's just a totally new world but a world that's recognizably ours that has recognizably human uh, appetites and virtues, mm-hmm. but are also governed by completely different ways of seeing the world that are just totally foreign. Uh, I really appreciate that, but I can see maybe how that would feel like you're kind of boxed in by that setting a little bit. Yeah, I think so. And it might be the idea of like older cultures feeling very alien to us because I also appreciate being able to see like 
human beings have always been human beings and like getting that connection, I think. And so that sense of alienation for me almost feels like um, you're othering that other culture that happened in the past in a way. And so maybe that's kind of where I find that a little bit off-putting is, um, I don't know, like some of the savagery that's on display, especially in this movie, is is just something that like I have a hard time fathoming human beings doing to each other even though I know that we do that and we still continue to do that. Like, I, I don't know. It's just, it, I find it kind of off-putting with the way that it is staged and the way that it is like so cleanly and beautifully lit and yet still so horrible at the same time. Yeah, Jaron Blaschke is uh, the cinematographer that Eggers has worked with on all three of his his most recent movies. And you're right that Blaschke's cinematography is just so... Uh, there, there's a starkness to it, right? That, that's, that's beautiful, but also you don't have anywhere to hide mm. from the the horrible things, the, the beautiful things, the horrible and beautiful things yeah. that you see on screen. There's an image from The Witch um, that uh, depicts something that is, is so awful that I can't, I don't even really want to say what it is mm. because, on, on air, but... Part of what makes it so horrible is the way that Eggers uh, shoots this this witch from behind as she's doing something, mm. and it's lit completely in firelight. Mm. And just something about watching a human move in that way, lit in that way, and do what this person is doing mm. is there. There's something elemental, like it's it, it's almost like it's it's quintessentially human, but also quintessentially wrong, mm-hmm. and. That's something that I don't know if it's a pleasant experience, but it's unlike any other kind of experience I get from other films. Yeah, yeah. I can picture the exact shot you're thinking of. And I've only seen The Witch once, like it's, it's, six I've only years seen it ago. Once. It's seared in my mind. Yeah, can't not going to be able to forget that. And I think there are some shots in this as well that I'm going to have a hard time forgetting too. Not just the horrible ones either, but just like those gorgeous landscapes that from Iceland and just all over the place, like absolutely lovely. Um but yeah, I don't know, like maybe the remove is the isolated nature of the stories that Eggers is telling. Like with the witch, it's a Puritan family out in the middle of the woods. They've intentionally cut themselves off from their community. Um, with the lighthouse, it's these two guys <laughs> in a lighthouse bickering with each other, also completely cut off from the rest of civilization and sort of slowly going mad over it or driving each other mad over it potentially. And with this, it almost feels like Eggers is trying to reach back to an even further time, like pre-writing, pre-any like any other form of history other than the spoken word. And the sense of isolation, like all of these people look so small against the mountains and the volcanoes that they're kind of set against and against the ocean, too. Um And it feels like they're sort of trying to, I don't know, write their own existence on the world in a way. Like they're Mm -hmm. they're farming the land and they're fighting each other and they're trying to essentially like push themselves up as being like, I'm here, I'm human, I have an effect on the world, but I'm still so small. And I think it's that that smallness against that scale where I just have a little bit of a hard time like grasping it. Yeah, I think I'm glad you're you're bringing this up because... I want to talk about this because I think for me, that kind of 
isolation and the way it captures kind of this uniquely human desire to make some sort of cosmic sense of mm-hmm. of where they are in the world mm-hmm. is an integral part to why Eggers' movies are so interesting to me. I think there's there's an inescapable spiritual vision yeah. to to what he's doing with with his films where the there there's some sort of drive to to establish uh for these characters to establish themselves within some sort of spiritual reality. You know, the witch, obviously, it's sort of this very righteous, very severe Puritan spiritual ideal. Uh, With The Lighthouse, my personal uh, theory about that film is that it essentially depicts a uh, a cycle of damnation. Mm -hmm. So these men are literally in hell. Uh, Listeners, if you have thoughts on that, let me know. It's an interesting (laughs) movie to form crackpot theories about um and in the northman obviously um maybe more than even the witch it's about there's so much about religion Mm -hmm. in this film and specifically you know the the savage forms that this this pagan culture uh has its uh religion take the form of Mm -hmm. uh and i want to get your thoughts on that because it is very savage and hard to watch, but it also, in in weird way, it's sort of like the it, it outlines by a conspicuous absence uh, the the importance of of mercy and forgiveness because there's not any of that here, and even um, even the the most enlightened characters in this film are all about you know the the vengeance and you know writing their presence on the world in blood. And uh, I don't know, I think that's a very interesting thing to really delve into with this film. Yeah, it's interesting because I think the religion that these people subscribe to, and it seems like there's a couple of different religions or at least a couple of different gods that different people like hold in higher esteem than others. So there's there's talk of Hela and Odin and a couple of other like figures in Norse mythology. Um, it feels like the religion that these characters subscribe to is is mostly a, a framework of making sense of the world, but it's this framework that is built on naturalistic forces. So um, it feels very unyielding, and to me it almost felt amoral. Like, morality doesn't really seem to come into it too much. It's, it's just, I am going to try to survive in the best possible way that I can, and if that means killing somebody else in order to be able to do it like that's kind of feels like i don't know um kind of kind of like the wolves that are also out there in this particular world as well like they're they're there to kill and that's their purpose in life and that's all that they understand how to do and so they're going to do that to the best possible ability that they can and if they do that and manage to fall in battle then I guess you get to go to Valhalla. Like that's the read that I got on it. I, I'm going to push back on that a little bit because yeah. uh, I feel like you know we talked about last week about how Michael Bay, uh, his ambulance was really amoral because essentially everything meant the same thing as everything else. Mm-hmm. Um, and I don't, I didn't get that from the Northmen. Um, I don't know that I would call it a moral. Like I, I don't know that I would call these characters' spirituality moral because. Human, there's human sacrifice. Vengeance is a virtue. Bloodshed is a virtue. Mm-hmm. Uh, Amleth worships Odin, who is sort of the protector of heroes. 
But Odin is also the god of death and carrion. You know, the the raven is his patron bird. Mm -hmm. And uh, it is the enactment of uh, his vengeance. Like, that's kind of what bears Amleth um, towards his destiny. Mm -hmm. And... There's there is a, a morality present there. It's not a morality that anywhere close resembles goodness, I would say. But there's it's it's interesting to watch a person act with such spiritual conviction that is so utterly wrong. It, it, it's 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 a lot like the witch in that you you look at the witch and you you see how awful it is for somebody to be just utterly spiritually ruined Mm -hmm. um that you that invites maybe or at least invited me as an audience member to sort of contemplate why i don't want that to be me (laughs) and and i feel like the northman um in its best moments does kind of invite that sort of reflection where uh you know fjolnir is probably the most conventionally enlightened of the entire cast just in terms of he's kind of democratically minded he he says you know i don't want to make slaves do any work that i wouldn't do myself which is you know like by the standards of that era he's you know a bleeding heart liberal (laughs) um but and yet he practices human sacrifice yeah Um, and has slaves and 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 does keep slaves and i think being thrust into that world as a you know a person with modern sensibilities it kind of makes you think about you know your own morality and your own your own spirituality and our our christian faith and why those things are so important Mm -hmm. and why we need them so much yeah yeah maybe maybe amorality might be a little bit too strong of it but kind i'm i kept thinking of like the the poem line about like nature red in tooth and claw where the only morality that really exists is the ability to survive and if you can manage to survive then you've done everything right and if you don't survive you'd better go out fighting somebody else in order to survive and then that's what's going to get you glory like there's definitely no grace in any of that um and maybe that's part of the reason why I find it so deeply jarring is not only is there no grace, I don't know that there's even any room for grace in this kind of a story, which kind of gets at my discomfort with revenge movies in general, I think. Um, there's just a mental block there where I just I have a really hard time watching people enact vengeance, even when it does feel like a little bit more justified, at least according to the dictates of the plot. So like... I genuinely enjoy watching the John Wick movies, have a really hard time with them at the same time. <laughs> you know, it's... So I have a bone to pick with a lot of the John Wick movies, and we're not going to get too too on onto the rabbit yeah, trail. But I, I do feel like John Wick... They're, they're, everything about the John Wick movies is just so slick. Like, the the everything is so well choreographed, and the cinematography just... It, they look amazing. Um, I, I just think they're, they're so polished as as pieces of craft and yet it's in service of something that i just find so utterly empty that it just the disconnect between those two things i just have a big problem with with the northmen everything is just unutterably grimy and and there's there's no for the most part uh there's no real concessions to making one character more likable than the other. Uh, like, uh, and 
I think the way that Eggers goes about doing that is really interesting. So the the opening sequence, we see uh, Ethan Hawke's uh, uh, king, Amleth's father, uh, make make this grand homecoming, and because we know. Or, or at least we we guessed that you know this is these are our main characters. We're kind of prepared to see Hawk's character as a good person. Like he's he, we want to see him as a as a good liege, a wise king, a doting family man. And over the course of the film, we begin to see some parts of that image called into question. But even at the very beginning of the film, Eggers kind of tips his hands with this match cut where we see Hawk returning and he's got a train of slaves from his latest raid trailing behind him. They're, they're led off to the side while he continues on to, the, to his grand hall. But then there's a match cut where the camera, as it pans to follow the slave's path, there's a match cut to the same panning movement being done over the subjects inside the great hall, mm. essentially saying this guy who's, you know, our here, this is our hero's family. The people who are even his subjects, they're not, they're not like free men under a, an, under a de- democracy. They're under the thumb and kept in line by power and force. Mm-hmm. And as the film goes on, we see probably also a lot of violence as well. Yes. And I think that uh, just, it, it, it does not l- leave the audience any refuge to sort of feel good about who Amleth is, what Amleth is doing. We understand why he's doing it because he's our point of view character and Eggers doesn't shy away from making it seem grand and glorious in some ways to die in the service of Odin. But he also doesn't try to make, with one exception, maybe we can get into this, he doesn't try to turn Amleth into sort of a Maximus from Gladiator kind of character where we're just like, yeah, get get evil Commodus. Like there's, there's no fist-pumping uh, bloodlust uh, that the audience is allowed to luxuriate in, at least not for very long, I thought. Mm-hmm. I'll be curious to know what, like, which, what you were thinking of um, about like the subversion of that, because I think the the image I think of first when I'm thinking of Amleth is him as a child still, like catching snowflakes in his tongue, and you realize like, oh, this kid is a boy, even though he's just passed like a manhood test essentially with his father. And I kept coming back to that image even after he'd grown up a little bit, um, because he doesn't know any better he's kind of he's grown up in this system he doesn't understand like how to get out of it necessarily like that's all he sees and that's all he knows so he doesn't know to leave that kind of a life so it's definitely a a tragedy movie like in the classical sense i think like a lot of great kings warring against each other and seeking revenge against each other but it's also yeah yeah, but it's also it felt like a very personal tragedy at the same time because this kid is stuck kind of in the in the system and in the cycle of violence that he didn't really ask for and hmm. was sort of thrust into. I mean, I, I think that's that's present in the story, and that's maybe part of how why I don't think Eggers really intends this to be read as a as a fully sort of one one of these escapist revenge tales where it's kind of it's just fun to watch the the villain get his, you know, mm-hmm. um, because he does kind of have nods like you know the emphasizing Amleth's innocence as a child and kind of using that as a contrast to when we next see him, he's he's literally, he's just lumbering around like a bear, yeah. killing everything in his path. Mm-hmm. And literally, 
um, his band of warriors, they, they literally like howl at the moon mm -hmm. and are, are purposely making themselves beasts. That's just the way they live. Um, and I think that that's kind of how Eggers, even though he doesn't directly critique the revenge quest that Amleth goes on, I think there's enough there for him to, uh, to suggest to the audience, like, you're not supposed to be enjoying this. If you're enjoying this, there's something deeply, deeply wrong with you. Mm -hmm. That said, there is a, a romance subplot uh, with uh, Anya Taylor-Joy's Olga of the Birch Forest that I think is a misstep for the film, mostly because it feels like in those scenes, we're kind of getting, they're framed sort of like the scenes in Braveheart between mm. Mel Gibson and his, you know, his sainted wife, where it's, it's just, it's a very, it's a, it's a tender romance. They genuinely care for each other. They're in picturesque locales, skinny dipping in hot springs, you know, like that's, I was disappointed that the film went there because I feel like in those, that's the sort of cinematic grammar that we expect out of one of these more straightforward tales of, of bloodlust. Mm -hmm. And it didn't fit with the, with the much more uncompromising vision that we get elsewhere. In the film. That's funny because I felt like those were kind of nice breaths of relief. <laughs> they are, they are, it is relieving. Yeah. Um, but yeah, the, the romance does feel a little bit thin, but at the same time, it kind of felt good to watch these characters enjoy like a moment almost of grace, potentially, with each other. Um, I wish that I had gotten a little bit more of Anya Taylor-Joy's character, though, like her character as her and not her character as uh, Amleth sees her, I think. Yeah. Um, and I think that because the movie is so closely like tied to his point of view, I'll forgive it that because it is very much from his viewpoint. So he's going to see her in a specific way. He may not even fully understand her as like a person necessarily, because I don't think Amlis a feminist by any stretch well, of the imagination. It, it's so interesting that kind of his, his right of manhood, like his initiation right that he undertakes with his father at the beginning of the film, part of the secret knowledge that they pray to Odin for is we, we pray to... Uh, I, I can't remember the exact line, but something about we we pray for you to reveal the mystery of women to yes. us. Yeah. That's the first thing they pray for, and they, and then they you know the rite continues, and they kind of mention that women already know men, but men don't know women. We we have to get to the bottom of this, <laughs> and that's very interesting, especially considering the way that the two primary female characters, uh, Olga. And then Nicole Kidman's mother character, Goodrun, mm -hmm. um, the places that the movie goes with each of them, I think is interesting to view in light of that early scene. <laughs> yeah, yeah, I guess. Yeah, the the line is women know the mysteries of men. Um, I'm kind of glad that they don't try to explain the mysteries of women necessarily to this guy, though, because like, it's not something that needs to be explained. I it. That I think that that would have been taking the movie a little bit too far off course from its very singular like viewpoint and its its focus on just roaring rampage of revenge, <laughs> which like you observed it 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 becomes a bit much at times. I mean, like it's it reminded me a lot of the TV show Hannibal in that mm. carnage kind of achieves its own sort of outre 
enchantment. Like there, there are episodes of Hannibal. I don't know if, if you've seen it. I haven't. It's one. It's been on my list forever. I would like to see it, but I have not seen it. I mean, it's it's a tough watch. I never actually managed to finish it because it became a bit much for me after a little while. But you know, this is sort of like the world of Hannibal Lecter, um, and we in the course of the show you meet these serial killers who create these horrific tableaus of their victims that are both kind of a, a grisly calling card and also weird sort of performance arts. Mm-hmm. Like they make, they treat the human body as some, the way another, the way an artist would treat like a block of stone or a lump of clay. Mm-hmm. And it's, it's awful. It's, it's it's why I never was able to finish it. But I felt like I saw a lot of that in what Amleth does in his course for revenge, where we see some awful, awful acts of violence that he perpetrates, mm-hmm. but it's also, it, it's, it's like, you know, reading Beowulf, you know, where he, when he rips off Grendel's arm, you know, that's also very grisly, but it's kind of part of this full-throated Viking milieu that Eggers is trying to create for us. And it kind of brings back in the religious symbolism as well. So there's a moment in this movie where human corpses are sort of arranged to appear like a horse. But importantly, that horse has six legs. Um, six-legged horse is Sleipnir, which happens to be Odin's mount. Um, so there's a lot of like, Eggers is very knowledgeable about his subject matter. Like he knows what he's doing. And I appreciate that they didn't necessarily like call attention to it. It's just there. And if you notice it, great. And if not, it doesn't really take away from the horror, I think. But it does add that additional layer of there is this symbol of this god that has sort of invaded this small village, like living space of people who do not necessarily worship Odin. And there's this symbol that has been created of some of their people um, of this God that they don't worship. And they're kind of stuck with the knowledge that there's something out there to get them. And it's very malevolent. I thought it was, it's so telling too, that actually Christianity does come in for a mention in Mm -hmm. this film, but the only mention of it is, um, uh, one of the slaves is talking to one of the other slaves. They're they're on Fjolnir's farm. They've just witnessed this horrible uh, corpse sculpture that Amleth has made. And they're talking to each other about, maybe it was the Christians. Did you hear the Christians? They worship a corpse who has been nailed to a tree. And it's so telling that they're so steeped in a, in a culture of n- violence and death that even the image of Jesus on the cross mm-hmm. becomes... A, a horrible it, it it's transmuted into another horrible death cult mm-hmm. which you know that's the way the romans saw it too but it's so telling that um eggers just brings us so completely into the setting that that is kind of a logical way for them to see the religion of mercy weakness and self-sacrifice mm-hmm. rather than the sacrifice of others yeah yeah definitely horrifying um kind of circling back a little bit to like that hard morality and like that hard like un unblinking look um what did you think of the direct address to camera stuff that's going on here because i think there's a decent amount of it where different characters will address each other and they're looking straight down the barrel of the camera i don't remember that happening in any of eggers other movies so that might have thrown me off a little bit there too uh you know i don't i think that it's interesting because when when the when those moments came, I was like, "Yeah, this this is the real Egger stuff," you know. But you know, I don't. I, I think you're right that I can't recall a any other time in his previous two films where that specific device was 
used. And for me, at least, it kind of had the effect of transfixing the audience. And by transfix, I mean transfixed in the way that a butterfly is transfixed to a board by a pin. Mm-hmm. Ed- Eggers, he he f- fixes the audience with a character, you know, staring right down the barrel of the camera and saying, essentially prophesying Amalus' journey of carnage and revenge. Mm-hmm. Um, it's it's interesting. There's there's a few ways you could interpret that. I kind of just took it as his way of emulating the way that, you know, Beowulf kind of begins with this, you know, quiet, you know, yeah. listen to this story that I am about to tell you. Um, kind of like almost like a, a campfire story. It For me, it just adds to the whole elemental feel of the film. I'm, I'm curious to know what you made of it. I though. just had an epiphany. <laughs> I think I think this might okay. work, potentially. Lay we'll it on we'll me. see. Um, all of the other movies deal in all of Eggers other movies deal in um very faithful recreations of the writing of the people that he's making these movies about so a lot of the dialogue in the witch feels very puritan because it's lifted from puritan writings same deal with the wikis in the lighthouse um we don't have that record of that same writing from the vikings in 960 something ad um, but we do know that they were an oral culture, so it, would, it wouldn't have been written down. It would have been spoken directly to somebody else around the fire. So maybe that's his way of, of getting at that mode of communication. I mean, he do, it, the Northman does feel a lot like uh, an epic tale, like mm-hmm. Homer or the, the uh, whatever poet uh, created Beowulf, the unnamed Beowulf poet. Um, they're... they're it does kind of feel like Eggers just wants to bring us into that kind of feeling of listening to this tale. And he doesn't tell us, he doesn't editorialize about it, I guess. Mm-hmm. You know, he, he just, it, it's, it's not like when you're reading the Odyssey, uh, Homer takes time out to say, but really Odysseus probably shouldn't have stayed for seven years with Calypso <laughs> if he's trying to get home to his wife. Mm-hmm. Uh, like that, that just doesn't happen. Not because we're not supposed to think about that as modern readers in the 21st century, but just because that's not what's important to Homer. That's not what's important to Odysseus. Uh, that's not what's important to Amleth. Amleth doesn't really have enlightened impulses. He's He is a brute. He, he kills people, and that's kind of what he does. That's what Odin wants him to do. How the audience feels about that is a different matter, maybe. Mm-hmm. Yeah, seems like you felt pretty good about it, at least the way that the story was told. Anyway, I, I feel I feel pretty good. I, this is probably of the three Eggers movies I've seen. I, I think that I like his other two a little bit more, mm-hmm. mostly because I do feel like the uh, the brave heartification of of Amleth in the, in the last act is disappointing. It feels like a little bit of a pulled punch. Mm-hmm. Um, but then again, you know, <laughs> having the respite, it's difficult to see, you know, maybe Eggers just sensed that there's only so much brutality, unrelenting that audiences can take before uh, they they check out. So maybe that was a considered decision rather than a flaw. Who knows? Mm-hmm. Um, but I do think on balance, the Northman continues Eggers' string of just having this really uncompromising vision, just going whole hog on it and trusting his audience to 
to come along for the the bloody ride. Yeah. I'm curious to see what he does next. I'm dying to know. Yeah. Well, uh, holding out for that Nosferatu adaptation, although I don't know if that's actually going to (laughs) happen. I mean, given your your status as the resident seeing and believing vampire expert, we can only hope that we get to review Robert Eggers' Nosferatu on seeing and believing 800 or whenever that comes around. Listeners, that is our review of Robert Eggers' The Northman. It is currently hitting theaters this weekend. So if you have a chance to see it, let us know your thoughts. Uh, We obviously will caution you. uh, It's not a family film by any stretch of the imagination. It's very violent. So keep that in mind. Make wise viewing uh, decisions, obviously. But it is a very interesting film if you can take it. And we're very interested in your thoughts on it. Don't go anywhere. We're about to uh, take a slight detour to a 1950s city apartment and uh, a different kind of looking uh, with our review of Alfred Hitchcock's 1954 Rear Window. When you need mealtime inspiration, it's worth shopping Kroger, where you'll find over 30,000 mouth-watering choices that excite your inner foodie. And no matter what tasty choice you make, you'll enjoy our everyday low prices, plus extra ways to save, like digital coupons worth over $600 each week. You can also save up to $1 off per gallon at the pump with fuel points. More savings and more inspiring flavors make shopping Kroger worth it every time. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Fuel restrictions apply. Well, listeners, as we mentioned at the end of that last segment, uh, we are going to be reviewing Rear Window on the second half of the show. We're going to be taking a slight hiatus from the watch list just to make time for one of our patron picks. And uh, yeah, the reason we uh, we do that is, uh, you know, some of you do offer your hard-earned dollars to help us keep the lights on over here. And we like to give back in a way uh, to everyone who pledges at the $10 a month level, you can pick one film per year for us to watch and uh we do it so rear window is the one we're doing uh this week you get to dictate what we end up seeing probably not what we end up believing about it but, yeah, yeah. We, we we can't promise that we will like the movie that you uh that you dictate to us but we do promise that we will watch it and take it you know like give it a very serious going over in, in the discussion and so far i've been really happy with all the the patron picks we've had it's just They've all led to such great discussions. I'm especially looking forward to our talk about Rear Window because it's Rear Window. Come on. It's a real, it's a good movie. It's 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 great stuff. So we'll we'll get there in a second, don't worry. But uh listeners, if you uh want to maybe get in on this action a little bit and dictate what we see, if not what we believe, uh then you can head over to patreon.com forward slash seeing underscore believing underscore podcast you can investigate the various tiers you don't have to pledge at ten dollars a month there are uh, tiers all the way from three dollars a month all the way up to 25 dollars a month so lots of spread there find the tier that's right for you and if you do end up pledging you will have our undying thanks so that's it you won't stay here and i can't go with you it would be the wrong thing You don't think either one of us could ever change? Right now, it doesn't seem so. I'm in love with you. I don't care what you do for a living. I'd just like to be part of it somehow. This 
deflating to find out the only way I can be part of it is to take out a subscription to your magazine. I guess I'm not the girl I thought I was. Now, there's nothing wrong with you, Lisa. You've got this town on the palm of your hand. Not quite, it seems. Goodbye, Jeff. Well, you mean good night. I mean what I said. Well, well, Lisa, couldn't we just, uh, couldn't we just keep things status quo? Without any future? Well, when am I going to see you again? Not for a long time. At least, not until tomorrow night. So this week, we are not going to be going to the watch list, which is the segment where usually a host dictates a movie for the other host to see that they probably haven't seen before. Um, instead, we are going to a Patreon pick where a patron gets to choose which movie we get to discuss. So this week, um, we are going with a Patreon pick from Dave Welch, um, who happens to be my dad. Hi, dad. <laughs> Thank you for supporting the podcast. Um and this is actually the second time that he's made me watch Rear Window, because the first time he made me watch it, I was in middle school on a family movie night. Um, and I appreciated it then, but I think I appreciated it a little bit more this time around. So I'm excited to talk about it with you, Kevin. Yeah. Uh, so this this is uh, another movie, of course, that, I, that I've also seen. I mean, Rear Window is wonderful. And I had a kind of a... I saw it at a similar point, I feel like, in, in my development. I can't remember exactly when I saw it for the first time, but I was also a young person. And at that time, I did not have the taste that I do now. <laughs> um, and I, I remember kind of my overriding reaction to Rear Window, because I was, I was enthralled by it. I thought it was great, was that I had no idea that old movies could be so exciting. Like, it was... It was like a real movie. Yeah. Uh, it was, you know, what dumb childhood Kevin said at the time. But I think that's maybe a testament to just how good this movie is. That even if you're, you know, a dumb 12-year-old or whatever, you can't help. But <laughs> we we stand a king, I guess, <laughs> would be would be one way to put it. It's just, it's, I don't know. I Watching it this time, I'm just like... I don't know that I have any notes. It's just, it's it's cl pretty close to being a perfect movie. Mm -hmm. Yeah, I'm excited to dig into that uh, with you. Um, for those who have not seen Rear Window, I mean, go see Rear Window. But for those who might not necessarily be familiar with the plot, um, confined to a wheelchair after breaking his leg, news photographer L.B. Jeffries has nothing to do in the New York City summer except spy on his neighbors. When one of his neighbor's suspicious behavior leads him to believe that he's witnessed a murder, he recruits his fashionable girlfriend, played by Grace Kelly, his nurse Stella, played by Thelma Ritter, and a detective that he knows, uh, played by Wendell Carey, to help him investigate. They're a little bit suspicious. They don't really necessarily believe that what he says is true. Maybe he's going a little crazy in the heat. We don't know. Um, so, Kevin... Uh, one of the things that works so beautifully about this movie is that Hitchcock kind of implicates Jeffries as he's investigating this this murder. And he's not just implicating Jeffries with the use of the other characters who express their doubts about whether or not anything wrong or untoward has taken place here. He's also doing it on a very technical level with the camera and the framing and the way that he sets everything up. So I'm curious to know, are you more on the side of 
Stella and uh, Lisa and the detective? Or are you along with uh, Jeffries? Are you craning your neck for more of a look? Well, okay, I'm going to do an end run around that question because here's the thing. And this is, I think, is the is the film's secret weapon. Is I think they're all on the same side in the end. Mm-hmm. So it's true that you know the the detective is sort of like, come on, you 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 think you've seen a murder, but you've probably just there's a logical explanation for all of this. Uh, the no Thelma Ritter's no nonsense nurse Stella is just is just kind of trying to talk some sense and like you just need to stop focusing on other people's lives and get your own life in order. Why aren't you marrying Grace Kelly? Which is the question that probably everybody watching the movie is asking. Mm-hmm. Um, but for all their skepticism, by the end of the film, they all are kind of sucked into Jimmy Stewart's sort of obsession. And in fact, Stella, probably the one you would never have expected to get sucked into it, is the most avid uh, murder uh, murder spectator of them all mm-hmm. talking about how the the trunk in which this person may or may not have packed up his cut up wife could leak you know <laughs> just very ghoulish and I think that's why I ended up loving so much this time around is that it is a movie that's kind of about the the pleasures and pitfalls of peeping but it's also very savvy about how we all kind of want to indulge it and in some ways that's sort of a universal human uh foible is that it's kind of fun to spy on others it's kind of fun to spin stories about strangers we don't know very well it's kind of it's it's fun and hitchcock gets that too and by the end of the film he gives us shots of all of these characters even the skeptics kind of like you know kind of trailing off in the middle of their sentence and kind of looking out the window and like oh i want to gawk at this person a little bit hey hold that thought I want to look at this person. Yeah. And I think I, I think it's just, it's delightful. It's very knowing. It's mildly convicting um, and just thoroughly enjoyable. Maybe the, the real dynamic character arc in this movie is Thelma Ritter going from saying, we've become a nation of peeping Toms to realizing to that she is one of them. peeping Tom of them all. Definitely, <laughs> yeah. I th- and I think the thing that I was noticing the most um, this time around was actually the editing more so than the framing because Hitchcock does an incredible job of juggling all of these little disparate stories and dramas kind of outside Jeffrey's apartment. So it's not just what's going on over in the Thorwald's apartment across the way. It's what's going on in the apartment below them and kind of catty corner to them and over to the sides. And every single window that we get to look into has its own little drama and its own little story to tell. And some of them are happening simultaneously with what's going on over at the Thorwalds. And maybe for the purposes and intents of the story, not all of them are quite as important, but he still lends them like that sense of time and space and ability to sort of breathe and development and to breathe and develop um, so that uh, we actually care about what's happening to all of these people. Like I care about the ballet dancer across the way, almost as much as I care about the newlyweds who have just moved in. Um, And it's just a lovely balancing act of he's able to maintain suspense, not just between what's going on over at the Thorwalds, but also what's happening with all of these other little dramas around the sides too. So I think one of the reasons this film is, um, a great movie rather than just a a really solid, you know, mystery thriller 
is that Hitchcock takes his time. The the actual mystery of what happened to Mrs. Thorwald doesn't get introduced until probably the like a good what do you say like half hour into the movie. Mm-hmm. There's a lot of time where it's just, it's just Jimmy Stewart sitting at his window trying to scratch his scratch his leg that's in a cast and just sort of like observing and that kind of patience that Hitchcock shows allows us to be invested not just in you know our our hero and his friends and the big mystery but also just kind of like there's an entire world an entire ecosystem happening in this in this little courtyard that he looks out onto and that's I, I think that's kind of what makes it a humane film rather than just sort of like a mystery of the week pot boiler mm-hmm. is that all these people like they they're they're recognizably human and they are kind of stereotypes at first and then as the film goes on you kind of realize you know maybe the stereotypical nature of their relationships is more just because Jimmy Stewart's spying on them and he's not actually getting to know them and as little details start to come out you start to think oh that's not the way we have to see them as well and i i just i love i love that and that has a way of lending its own kind of low level suspense to the film like you 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 want to know what's going on with miss lonely hearts mm-hmm. almost as much as you want to know what happened to mrs thorwald mm-hmm. yeah yeah and that core mystery too is not overdone like it's literally just was she murdered wasn't she that's all you need to know and I'm so glad that the movie is willing to just be straightforward and take its time trying to like build that slow burn as opposed to adding in twist after twist after twist. Like there's not a ton of twists or anything. It's just here's a clue. Maybe it has something to do with what's going on and maybe it doesn't. You get a little bit of additional information, but it's not, oh, it wasn't Mr. Thorwald who murdered Mrs. Thorwald. It was like the postman or something like you never get that twisty sensibility to it it's very straightforward and i i just i appreciate the movie's willingness to just kind of sit in that almost linear storytelling um in a way that i don't think i would have appreciated even just a few years ago yeah the um you know there's not a whole lot of ambiguity in in the story in terms of like the movie is pretty clearly like Hitchcock, you know, we, we trust Jeffries. We don't think he's hallucinating or, or making things up necessarily, but Hitchcock does allow just enough of, of doubts to linger that it strings us along. Like it's not just a story about, we got to stop this bad guy from getting away with it. It's more, well, you know, is he, he's probably not misinterpreting, but how would you explain this? There is a shot that Hitchcock is careful to include right at the beginning where we see what appears to be Mrs. Thorwald leave the the apartment across the way and go off to presumably the train station with Mr. Thorwald. Mm-hmm. Now, as the movie goes on, you, you're kind of like, okay, well, there's got to be like, that wasn't her. But if it wasn't her, who was it? And why did Hitchcock show us that? you know maybe he does maybe a big twist is coming where everything is all right and that kind of uncertainty is just it's a master touch on hitchcock's part he doesn't overplay it because then we'd kind of probably be able to cotton to the game he's playing but he's he's he makes sure to put it in there because there has to be just a little pebble in our shoe 
making us ask the same question that the detective is asking. Yeah, yeah. Oh, and I love like the way that the supporting characters kind of help to shed that doubt on top of Jimmy Stewart's case. He makes a very good case. He's very argumentative and very persuasive. Um, But I love the use of other characters to balance out that argument and to bring up like very reasonable like well maybe you've had maybe you have a saw in your own garage like have you ever used that to murder somebody (laughs) um so i kind of want to talk a little bit about grace kelly's character though okay let's let's grace kelly in this movie incredible man you 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 always think like oh yeah grace kelly she's she's a pretty woman (laughs) and then you watch this movie and it's I was not prepared. Mm-hmm. Uh, it, and I think that the enchantment she brings to the screen is, is an important ingredient. Yeah, it really is. And I think it helps sell the idea that Jeffries doesn't think that he's good enough for her, or at least he keeps telling himself that he doesn't think he's good enough for her, and yet he's he's happy to stick with status quo. And the thing that struck me this time around was that he's kind of gatekeeping her experience of the world in an interesting way because she wants to go on adventures with him. She wants to go out and spend time out in the world with him as he's taking photos in Pakistan or wherever. And he doesn't want her to come along with that because the image that he has of her is her as a New York City fashionable socialite wearing $1,100 dresses in 1954 money. <laughs> and he can't picture her tramping through the mud in high-heeled shoes because that's the way that he sees her. Like, he sees her kind of the same way that he sees all of the rest of his neighbors because he's made this assumption about her and what she's capable of. And she definitely proves herself to be capable of so much more than he assumes that she can be throughout the course of the film. Like she, climbs up the fire escape and breaks and enters and cracks the mystery wide open. But so much of what he assumes about her is just because she fits a certain place in society and he can't see her outside of that. And I think my favorite piece is when those tables kind of get turned on him and he is unable to rescue himself in a situation where he would have wanted to be able to rescue her as well. Like he can't do anything he's powerless to. And I just, I love, it's a delicious irony and I love it. It, it. He is so quick to make assumptions and like you observed earlier, he's, he's a smart guy. Mm-hmm. He's, he, and he, he knows his way around a, uh, an argument, and yet he. One of the fun things about this film is how many times he's wrong, or or at least doesn't have the whole truth. And the relationship with Kelly, I think, is interesting because he kind of stereotypes her the same way that he stereotypes the the neighbors across the way. Mm-hmm. Like she's kind of uh, fits a certain archetype, and he's very good at arguing that she fits that, and she does kind of fit some elements of this weird mental stereotype he has but that's not the whole truth Mm -hmm. and i think that's kind of what a a lot of what this movie is about is getting at the whole truth and how being a voyeur you are simultaneously seeing people in very unguarded in a very unguarded way they're not you know trying to dissimulate it all so you are kind of getting the full picture as far as who they are when they think no one's watching but you're also imposing your own construction onto that unguarded self. And that's just kind of this interesting binary that that Hitchcock observes. And what I think makes this such a great movie about the act of watching and kind of 
the way that we watch movies. Mm-hmm. Uh, it, it's, it's, you know, it's, and it's timeless too. Listening to L.B. Jeffries tell uh, his devoted, very adventurous girlfriend that she's not really cut out for the adventurous life. You kind of think of the, you know, the, the, gamer of 2021 going on about fake geek girls and how they you know they they think they're they're real gamers but they're not real gamers every (laughs) single guy who's ever told me i can't like a michael mann movie because i'm a woman is lb jeffrey like i i get it i i I feel what grace kelly feels in that moment (laughs) it's but yeah i think it's just so great how hitchcock is able to to tweak the audience uh, while also kind of kind of cheerfully acknowledging that you know we're all kind of in the same, but we all kind of like to you know have our own little fiefdoms and and put people into boxes and just organize our our little worlds the way we like and see fit. Yeah, yeah. I think getting to that idea of like fiefdoms and where we put those two, there's this interesting thread too of the police in this movie as well, where Jeffrey's detective friend is perfectly happy seeing only what he wants to see and keeping people in that box and not necessarily like poking at what's in the box and seeing what else is going on in there too um because it kind of benefits him to just stick with that status quo as well i don't know if you if you yeah the uh it's it's in his character is really interesting because he is sort of he's got kind of this blase attitude towards the world where you know let the professionals handle all the crime solving. Uh, it's probably nothing. And I've seen, I've seen a dozen people, you know, like kill their wives. I've seen everything, but this probably isn't that, you know, it's, it's kind of this combination of thinking the worst, having this very jaded view of the world while also not being particularly curious about it. Mm. Uh, that I, I think is, I mean, I don't know how accurate a picture of, real world detectives it is i don't personally know any but it's a very um perceptive view of how a certain type of person moves through the world and i think that's it's rear window is such a great portrait of human nature in from various angles i think it's it's great for that yeah and it's that curiosity that like is the kind of thing that i kind of want to emulate too even though at the same time hitchcock keeps like implicating us in it as well like be curious maybe don't be too curious but also if you're curious enough you'll you'll solve a crime at the same time i don't know that there's a moral to rear window and i think it would be a very boring movie if there was a moral but like you could you could pull some of those threads out a little bit further, I think. Well, and the way Hitchcock uses his camera is very clever too, because he he frames certain shots like he he'll kind of push the camera through L.B. Jeffries' window, and that essentially invites the audience to do exactly what Jeffries is doing, which is just kind of crane our neck a little bit, try to see like what's well, just beyond the edge of the frame. What is this camera about to unveil to us? And it's just. He's he's playing us like a fiddle. It's it's wonderful, and yet it's not it's not got the coldness of I don't know like a Michael Haneke film where it's where it's just sort of accusatory because mm-hmm. um, Haneke is very much about accusing the audience and and their appetites for certain kinds of suspense. But I feel like in the end, this is kind of it's a humane vision. Mm-hmm. Glad we took a second look on it. <laughs> me me too me too listeners. Uh, that was our review of Rear Window. Great 
now, as great now as it always has been. Thanks a lot to, to Dave Welch for, you know, having us watch that again. I don't know why it took me so long to, to revisit it, but uh, it was a really good excuse to do it. So thanks so much for that. Mm-hmm. Um, we are going to be... <laughs> I'm excited about next week. Kevin Sarah. has things in store. I have things in store. So listeners, next week we are going to be reviewing the new Nicolas Cage movie, The Unbearable Weight of Massive Talent, in which Cage plays himself, um, or at least a version of himself. So excited. I, I'm excited to see what he does with that. But it is my turn for the watch list next week. And I'm just going to come in guns blazing, literally, <laughs> with... The pick of Face Off. Sarah has not seen Face Off. I'm going to make you watch it. Yeah, the only John Woo movie I've ever seen is Mission Impossible 2. So this feels like I'm getting two for one, honestly, because I'm getting John Woo and I'm getting Nicolas Cage. I'm very excited. Are there doves is a big question. Oh, of course there are doves. It's, It's a John Woo movie. There are going to be doves aplenty and so much more. So much more. Listeners... If you have not seen Face Off and you want to watch along, there is no time like the present. I am going to be very interested to hear what Sarah thinks, but you know, you know what our our Twitter is, you know what our email is. If you're watching along with us and seeing Face Off for the first time, uh, I am beyond interested in knowing what your reactions are as well. So definitely keep us posted on those. But if you want to hear what Sarah and I have to say about it, well, tune in next week. But that'll have to wait for next week. As for this week, we've reached the end of the episode. Seeing and Believing is brought to you by the Christ and Pop Culture Podcast Network. Our producer is Jonathan Clausen, who every week helps us to search for the sacred on screen. I'm your host, Kevin McLenathan. My co-host is Sarah Welch-Larson, and we'll see you next week on Seeing and Believing. You have been listening to Seeing and Believing, an official production of the Christ and Pop Culture Podcast Network. Please rate and review the show in iTunes, and check out our other shows at christandpopculture.com slash network. Theme music by Alexander Osborne and Lindsay Miz. Used under Creative Commons License 3.0. This episode was brought to you in part by The Table Podcast at Dallas Theological Seminary. Listen to rotating hosts discuss issues of God and culture to demonstrate theology's relevance in everyday life. Find it on your podcast app. For videos and more, visit dts.edu podcast.